So we're going to have some Bible readings now and then Jeff will come and speak to us. Last week uh, was the first talk in our series, Gospel Driven Guidance, Discovering God's Plan for Your Life. And we heard about, uh, last week we heard about God's sovereign will for all things, that everything be united under Christ. This week we're going to focus on God, how God communicates his moral will through the Bible in a talk titled God's Word to Us. To set the scene, we're going to have three Bible readings. The first two are quite long. Uh, They tell the well-known stories of Gideon laying out a fleece uh, and the apostles casting lots to find a replacement for Judas Iscariot. We'll then see in the sermon what we should and shouldn't look to repeat in those situations today. So quite a lot to get through, and then Jeff will come and speak to us. Before we get into the Bible readings, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it is all-powerful and has the ability to change our hearts. Please speak to us clearly today. Help us to understand by your spirit what it is that you want us to hear. We pray for Jeff as he comes and speaks to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the first of the Bible readings is Judges chapter 6. That can be found on page 378 uh, of the Black Bibles that you have on your seats. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, And did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, And from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, 
Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offering the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up and there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar, they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, and they gave, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet summoning summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messages throughout Manasseh calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulon and Naphtali so that they too went up to meet him. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. We've got a couple of extra Bible readings to go, so Mark's going to come up and finish those off. Uh, This is the second reading. It's from Acts Chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, which can be found on page 1690 of the Bibles. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may this place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. 
and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. And our third reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 14, which is on page 1,853. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know these from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, well, uh, thanks very much. It's lovely to be with you again. Um, As I said last week, I'm one of the pastors at Trinity City and I work with evangelical students on North Terrace as well, but it's great to be with you here these three weeks on this short series thinking about gospel-driven guidance, uh, discovering God's plan for your life. Uh, Can I ask you please to take out from the inside of your leaflets uh, this handout. It's quite a detailed outline of what I'm going to cover. There's a couple of Bible passages in front of you there that will save you looking them up, uh, as well as some interesting pictures that will entertain you, if nothing else. Thanks to Robin uh, for explaining what we're doing in this series. Uh, As we saw last week, uh, in the first of the talks, God's will for all things, we saw that in the Bible there's two ways in which the phrase God's will is used. One is to describe his sovereign will, that is what must take place. Uh, The other is his moral will, that is how he wants us to live, which clearly and sadly not everyone chooses to do so. Uh, And one of the things I tried to argue last week was that uh, in the pages of the Bible, you don't find any evidence of there being a detailed and discoverable plan for every aspect of your life. Rather, it's about the principles around which we operate. Uh, Today's big idea, I'm just going to leave with it right up front so you don't miss it. There's blanks for you to fill in like last week. So if you've got a pen, the blanks for you to fill in here. Today's big idea is that God can speak directly to us, but he promises to do so in his word. God can speak directly to us, he's God after all, but he promises that he will speak to us in his word. And so those are the blanks to fill in there. Uh, Now I understand of course that there's a whole variety of reasons as to why we would like God to speak directly to us individually. Uh, Some of them are very good reasons, others less so. The best case The best reason for us wanting God to speak directly to each of us to tell us what He wants us to do with our lives in every circumstance is because we want to live lives that please Him. Uh, We saw that in Colossians chapter 1, which I've printed there for you again. Colossians 1 verse 9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. Why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's a, a good thing for Christians to want, for God to speak to us, to be very clear that we might do what pleases Him. On the other hand, there are some reasons, I think, that are less commendable as to why we want God to speak to us directly. Uh, one of them is that, and I'm, not, I'm sure no one here would ever say this, but one of them is because it's a lot quicker than having to read the whole Bible, uh, cover to cover, keep reading every, if God just told you what to do, that would be simpler. Um, but perhaps the other reason is that secretly there's a part of us which doesn't really want to have to answer for what we do to others. That is... If God told me what to do, I don't really have to defend my actions to anyone else. Now, I'm going to give you an example, and I do want to acknowledge up front that it is a little bit risky talking about politics, and it's especially risky talking about American politics and presidents, but I'm going to do it anyway, so just go with me. Uh, This is a quote from George W. Bush, a former president of the United States. God would tell me, George, go and fight those terrorists in Afghanistan. So I did. 
Then God would tell me, George, go and end the tyranny in Iraq. And I did. And now again, I feel God's words coming to me. George, go get the Palestinians their state, get the Israelis their security, and get peace in the Middle East. And by God, I'm going to do it. Now, I say that I give you the quote, um, not actually to be particularly critical of George W. Bush, but rather to say, it's an example of how, if you feel God has told you to do something, really, who is anyone else to object? On the other hand, as we've just been reminded in the last of those Bible readings from 2 Timothy 3, it's the Holy Scriptures that can make us wise for salvation. And for that reason, therefore, when it comes to thinking about God's will, to trying to discern what God's will is for our lives, how we are to live, uh, the diagram there tries to outline the various ways in which we think about authority in our life. Uh, We have tradition, that is what we've always done. We have experience, that is what we feel and uh, discover for ourselves. We have reason, that is what seems right. But over all of it, always stands Scripture. God's Word ought to shape the way in which we live. And so at the bottom of the, of the first page, uh, I've given you a short ac- extract from what it is that the student group that I work with has says is its, article of belief, its articles of belief. It's very first statement. The divine inspiration and infallibility of Holy Scripture is originally given and, here's the key, its supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. The Bible is our supreme authority when it comes to our decisions. Well, that's my big idea for today. Turn over the page and you'll see the three things that I want to cover uh, as we reflect on what that means and how we do go about discerning God's moral will for our lives. The first is to address the situations where God does appear to speak directly to people in the Bible. Uh, And I'm going to spend some time on this, uh, particularly uh, on those two longer readings that we had, the example of Gideon, and the laying out of his fleece, and the example of the apostles as they try to choose a replacement for Judas. Okay, each of those longer readings. A few things to say. Uh, The first is that, in the Old Testament in particular, there are a number of examples where God appears to speak directly to either the people as a whole or to individuals, but most of the examples are not especially commendable. Most of the examples are not especially commendable. A couple of reasons for saying that. Uh, One is that, um, I can put out the obvious, the Bible wasn't written in the Old Testament time, so they didn't actually have that as a way of discerning what God was saying to them. And on most of the occasions that God speaks to the people, it's not in response to their request for guidance. It's actually because they've gone completely off track and God has to intervene. So if you think about the times in which God does speak most famously, well, there is... Moses uh, and the burning bush, or more technically the not burning bush, uh, that God has to speak to him because Moses is in exile and God wants him to actually come back and lead his people out of Egypt. Or there's Elijah, uh, one of the prophets of God. Uh, Very famously, there's an episode where Elijah hears uh, the voice of God in his head telling him to do something. Uh, The only problem is at the time he's running away from God. So, not, I think, especially commendable or necessarily repeatable. But the second thing is to say is that in the Old Testament, even when individuals do ask God to speak to them directly, what they do with that advice generally is not a good model to imitate. The case in point is Gideon. Now, The reason I asked for the whole story of Gideon, and in fact there's chapters before and after, but at least the whole of chapter 6 to be read, was so that you might hear what's going on when Gideon makes his very famous request, he lays out a fleece. And Christians often talk about laying out a fleece before God. I hope you can see that as you reflected on what happened there with Gideon in Judges chapter 6, that in fact him asking God to speak to him directly doesn't help. Let me explain. Uh, The first time that Gideon asked God for a sign was when he uh, says to, uh, having clearly come into the presence of God, he says, let me bring an offering for you, and if you accept it, I'll know that things are okay. Which God does accept the offering, it's consumed in that burst of fire. But it doesn't actually cure Gideon's doubts. 
Because the thing that God tells him to do next is to go and tear down the idol to Baal. What does he do? He does it at night time. So no one will know that he's doing it. He's, he's still afraid. The next episode that comes along then is when uh, God tells him to go and attack uh, one of their enemies. And then we get the famous fleece-laying incident. Uh, you know, he lays out the fleece and he says to God, if this is really you speaking, then in the morning let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. And sure enough, that's the case. That's not the end of the story, is it? Because he, he then says, um, oh God, please don't be angry with me. Clearly, he's not that persuaded by what's going on. He says, just do it the other way around. Hence, the dry fleece overnight and the wet ground. In fact, the, Gideon, the story of Gideon ends in disaster. Now, this is the part about Gideon's story that probably doesn't get taught much in Sunday school, uh, but have a look at chapter 8, verse 27. Here's the last thing that we hear about Gideon at the end of his life. Uh, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a sneer to Gideon and his family. Uh, An ephod is a decision-making garment that the priest wore as he sought God's will. At the end of his life, Gideon asked for all Israel to give him gold to make a golden ephod. Now, if you know anything about Israel and golden objects, golden calves, this probably isn't going to end well. Sure enough, uh, by the end, we're told that all Israel prostituted themselves to this idol that had been fashioned. The point to draw from Gideon is that signs, asking for signs, made him dependent on more signs when it comes to decision making. Or to put it slightly differently, fleece laying makes you addicted to fleece laying. It doesn't actually help you make better decisions. And in fact, you become even less certain that you know God's will and that you're living a life that's worthy of him and pleasing him in every way. Well, that's the example of Gideon. Uh, What about Matthias and the casting of lots in Acts chapter 1? What about the New Testament, you might be thinking? Okay, that's the Old Testament I've described. What about the New Testament situation? Aren't there examples there where God appears to speak directly to his people and ought we expect a similar kind of intervention today? Uh, Well, I... I don't think so. I don't think the New Testament is much better. And I've picked what I think is the most famous example of God's direct intervention. That's the choosing of Matthias by the casting of lots. uh, Because I don't think it's especially useful for us either. You heard how the story went. They need one more person. They come down to a choice between two men. They can't make up their minds, so they cast lots, and the lot comes from Matthias, and he's added to the number of the twelve. Here's the problem with the scenario the practice of casting lots as a way of letting God speak to them directly is never repeated. Never repeated again in Acts or in the New Testament. Which I think is significant given the magnitude of some of the decisions that the early church has to make. There's the choosing of the deacons in chapter 6. There's the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15 where they acknowledge for the first time actually and finally, that Gentiles are welcome in God's people. There's the situation where Paul splits with Barnabas with a disagreement over Mark. In none of them do they ever cast lots again. It's saying to us, I think, that Acts chapter 1, and the blank for you to fill in here on your handout, Acts chapter 1 is descriptive, that is what God did, not prescriptive, that is what God promises to do. Acts chapter 1 is descriptive, what God did at a crucial moment in salvation history, in extreme circumstances, the choosing of one of the twelve, it's not prescriptive, it does not promise, it does not offer what God promises to do even now. Now realise that in saying what I've said about Acts, there will be some questions and feel free to ask them on the text line as Roman has pointed out, We're, we're keen to talk about these things. Uh, Some of you in particular will be saying, well, what about the role of the Holy Spirit? Uh, What part does he play in the guiding of God's people? 
I'll say more about that next week, which is really just a way of saying come back next week. Uh, I'll say more about that next week, but for now, uh, what I'd just like to point out is that usually when the Holy Spirit acts, uh, intervenes in the Acts of the Apostles, it's unrequested. Usually, his action is unrequested, and quite frankly, even when he does speak, he's often ignored. All right, that's enough at this point. Doesn't God speak directly to people in the Bible? I've tried to say that he does at times, but that it doesn't establish a pattern that we ought to expect today. So secondly, how then do I get to be wise for salvation? To use that phrase from 2 Timothy 3, how do I get to be wise for salvation? What I've tried to say in this series is that guidance asks, and it's on your handout there, guidance asks, God, tell me exactly what I should do in this particular situation. Whereas gospel-driven guidance says, God, remind me of the sufficiency of your word to make me wise for salvation. That is, gospel-driven guidance is all about asking God to remind us of what he's already told us. Because we're convinced that in what he's said, there is enough to make us wise for salvation. Uh, To put it slightly differently, uh, those 66 books of the Bible that we have, that's all we need. That's all we need. Uh, We don't need more and we don't need any less either. No less, that is, don't ignore any part of it. All of it is useful in some way. But likewise, you don't need any more than what's there. And, uh, you know, if I can be just a little bit cheeky at this point, do you really want more books, of the, more books to have to read? <laughs> Sometimes I think we complain, you know, God's giving me the silent treatment. Uh, one of the responses, said gently but firmly, is, He's written 66 books. There's probably enough there. Now, this is what is what I've described before as the supreme authority of Scripture. And there's a couple of implications that flow from that. You'll see them printed there on your handout. Let me talk about these for a few minutes. First implication then is, should I wait for God to lead me? That is, if His Word is sufficient, is there any place for me waiting for God to lead? Is it right for us to ask God to guide us and direct us? Is it right for us to wait until we sense that God is leading us in a particular direction, opening a door, if you want to use that kind of vocabulary? Well, at one level, I want to say, absolutely. We ought to wait for God's leading. And I want to say that because we evangelicals tend to be far too activist before we make a decision and far too quick to self-justify after we've made it. So there is a rightness in saying we ought to just pause and pray and wait before we rush into what we think is the right thing. But at the same time, I want to ask you, how do you imagine that God will speak to you when he does? How do you imagine that God will speak to you when he chooses to do so? Do you think it will be through your feelings about a particular situation? I don't know about you, but I know for myself, my feelings are so fickle, so malleable, that they are very rarely good guides for my decision-making. By contrast... Surely God speaks to us by enabling us to recall his eternal and unchanging promises. What he said about himself and our place in his world that he set out in such vivid detail in all those books of the Bible. I think this is important to dwell on because we live in a time which bombards us with messages that are anti-God Surely, over time, that must affect our instincts, 
our intuition and our feelings, surely that must give us certain default tendencies. But in the end, what springs to mind is what you live and breathe. It's what you inwardly digest. And what I'm appealing for today is a systematic reading and memorization of Scripture so that when faced with a decision, the first thing that comes to mind is not how you feel about the situation, significant though that might be, the first thing that comes to mind is God's Word. That it might be the last thing that you dwell on. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, a couple of implications there. Uh, let me talk about these, because uh, I think these are things that I hear about when I talk with Christians about decision-making and God's Word. Uh, the first is a comment about the open and point method for decision-making. Now, uh, you know what this is, and I hear some chuckles here. This is where you've got a big decision to make, and you think, I'm just going to open my Bible, whatever it comes out at. Clearly, that will be God speaking. And, you know, look, let me say about this. It's basically casting lots or laying out a fleece, to be honest. Uh, it can work. God can speak in any way that he chooses. He's God. But I guess the question I'm asking today is, why leave it to chance? Quite literally, why leave it to chance? It seems to me that the best type of devotional material when it comes to reading your Bible is the kind of material that takes you through the whole Bible. Uh, there is a place, I think, for, um, you know, how you can get the random Bible verse of the day sent to your inbox? Uh, there is a place for that. Um, to be honest, it's better than nothing. But why would you scavenge amongst the crumbs when there's an entire smorgasbord laid out in Scripture? Why wouldn't you walk through that systematically that you might digest everything that's on offer? There's a comment about the open and point method. The other comment I want to make is about um, our use of vocabulary. Um, this comes back to the example I gave at the start from George W. Bush. I, as Christians, I think... There's a way in which we speak that can enable others to help shape us, to be used by God to shape us, and there are ways in which we can actually shut out other people's comments and uh, input into our lives. So I guess I want to say, um, I try really hard to avoid saying, God told me to do something. Uh, because, of course, if I say that, really, who are you to object Instead, if you feel that that's the direction God would, would lead you, perhaps you might even, even just in the use of vocabulary, say something like, uh, I wonder if I'm being led to do this. Can you hear that even just the making of that statement? If, you, if you're reflecting on your decision-making to another Christian person, it at least gives them the possibility to ask a question to follow on. Uh, it's kind of like... An, let me say this as well. It's kind of like um, all we seek inner peace when it comes to decision-making. You know, is that a sign that God is in a decision, that he is, I wonder, perhaps leading me in this particular way? And Christians often talk about that. Uh, let me say, I think it is a good thing to seek peace. Uh, that's what Philippians 4 promises, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, guarding your hearts and minds. And you know what? Sometimes you do get it, which is a wonderful gift, isn't it? when you have that real sense of conviction and certainty and contentment with the decision? So by all means, ask God to give you that sense of peace. My only comment would be, sometimes you never get that peace. Sometimes there are two bad decisions and you still have to pick one. And oftentimes, the peace that we crave only comes a lot later, well after the fact. I think many of us know that to be true. Which means I think it's not a very good tool when it comes to making a decision in the present. 
Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, more briefly, in terms of implications about um, being wise for salvation, uh, what's the place then of wise counsel? I've talked about how Scripture ought to be our supreme authority. What is the place of wisdom? What's the place of wise counsel from those around us? What's the point of human wisdom in making decisions? Well, I'll say a couple of things here. The first is to draw your attention to Acts chapter 17, uh, which is, uh, I think, one of the most profound verses in the Bible. It's just a throwaway line, uh, but it's a profound verse because it reminds us that we ought not be dependent on anyone. And this is really important for me as a pastor to constantly say to the members of God's church, you must not be dependent on your pastors to mediate God's word to you. There's a whole bunch of reasons why, but the most basic is because I am no more sinless than you are. Uh, The example is here in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He's been in Thessalonica and he's been booted out of there for preaching the gospel. He goes to Berea and he's just about to get booted out of there for preaching the gospel, but before he does, he starts a little church. Look at what it says about the Christians in Berea. Verse 11, Acts chapter 17. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Isn't that fascinating? They tested what an apostle said, the greatest church planner of all time. They didn't just take his word for it. They tested against the Scriptures, in this case the Old Testament, but they tested against Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Uh, So... I want to urge you, be like the Bereans. Be of more noble character. Test everything that you hear against the Word of God. And that's, as Robin indicated before, that's one of the reasons why we symbolically have a question time at the end of each talk, that you might recognise that this is not my Word that sits over us, it's God's Word that rules over us all. Now, why have I had this slight digression? Well, uh, this is a challenge, I think. This is a challenge, uh, particularly, and you know, I'm going to trade on the fact at this point that I'm kind of Asian, uh, not particularly, but I sort of am. This is a particularly a challenge for Asian Christians who are very respectful of pastors, very respectful of pastors. Uh, in fact, I'm constantly telling the international students who join us at Trinity City, don't call me Pastor Jeff. Uh, my name is Jeff, and in fact, to call me Pastor Jeff in Australia is actually you being a little bit rude. Uh, that's very shocking to them, but you know, that's the way it goes. Um, I say this because actually, and for those of you who are from an Asian background, you know that in some Asian circles, you cannot make a decision unless you get your pastor's approval. Acts chapter 17 clearly undermines that kind of attitude. By contrast, of course, this is me pointing out that I'm not really very Asian, I'm actually Australian. (laughs) We Australians, with our convict heritage, are generally unwilling to listen to anybody. We have the exact... South Australian, I get your free settlers here, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Everyone always says that to me, we're free settlers here, and I point out that my family didn't come out on the first fleet either, and they look at me as if I'm, yeah, well, you know, I get your free settlers here. But um, we have a different problem. We are so anti-authority that we won't listen to anyone. Uh, do you remember that phrase, the supreme authority of Scripture? Supreme implies there are other voices. You do need to listen to them. But it's Scripture which is supreme. And the point really in the end is to understand your tendency. So are you more likely to be a people pleaser or someone who stubbornly ignores others? What's my point in all of this? My point is that in the end, the wisest counsel is biblical wisdom. The wisest counsel is biblical wisdom, not just human wisdom. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Many of you will know that Solomon, King Solomon, is regarded as being the wisest of teachers. He is the king who at the start of his reign asks God for wisdom and God endows him with it in that dream. You see over the rest of his life that he is a man who is steeped in human wisdom. Uh, We're told, I've made a reference there, that he collected and spoke 3,000 proverbs. 
many of which have been recorded for us in the Bible, and therefore I take it they are of some use. People came from all over the world to sit at his feet, to listen to his wisdom. And yet, how does the story of Solomon end? It ends with him turning away from God and bowing down to other idols. In preparation for this talk, I went and painstakingly checked. I read through all of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. There is no mention ever of Solomon reading the Bible for himself. Not a single reference anywhere. Now, that's not to say that he didn't, but I want to draw the contrast between Solomon and King Josiah, who I've referred to there. King Josiah, who hundreds of years later, rediscovers the book of the Lord, the Bible that they had. It's been absent from Israel's life for hundreds of years. What does he do? He makes the entire nation sit down and he reads it from cover to cover in their hearing. The wisest counsel in the end is biblical wisdom. And so what I've been arguing for here is the systematic reading of Scripture, the memorization of Scripture. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Use music if you have to. That it might be the first thing that comes to mind and the final word that you dwell on. Okay, let me finish then with a final thought. The final thought is, uh, somewhat um, directly, it's not about you. Let me explain. There's a reference at the bottom there, a picture there, to your personalised Bible as unique as you. And this is um, what's called, I discovered this a couple of years ago, the Personal Promise Bible. The Personal Promise Bible. You know, you can get lots of versions of Bibles. This is called the Personal Promise Bible. And what you can do here is that you can replace every occurrence of the word you in the Bible with your name. So, if you're interested, what you do is you go to the website, you punch your name in. I got Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is Jeff's shepherd. <laughs> Jeff shall lack nothing. <laughs> he makes Jeff lie down in green pastures. He leads Jeff beside still waters. He restores Jeff's soul. I was very affirmed by reading this. And for 129 US dollars, plus position handling, I can get my own personal promise Bible sent to me directly. Now, there are many problems with the personal promise Bible. The biggest one is that most of what God says in the Bible, He says to everyone, to people across time and space, which means that by necessity, it will be only of general application. It'll be all about the development of character and conviction, which is consistent for all of us no matter what the specific circumstances we find ourselves in. And we're going to come back next week and focus particularly on that idea. Uh, but in the end, what the personal promise Bible fails to understand is that the Bible is first and foremost not about you or me, it's about God. He's the main character. The Bible is describing what he is like before it ever suggests what we ought to do. And that means that in the end, the person for us to emulate is God himself, as seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to urge us to be a people who read the Bible consistently and systematically and constantly who don't just open it when we think we need help for a particular decision, but to be the kinds of people who are reading it all the time so that instinctively we know what the main character in it is like. We know what he wants. We know what he would do in a particular situation. You know, the kind of friend who only ever rings you when they need something? That's not the way to treat the Bible. That's not the way to treat God. Because in the end, what we want is, if I can put it this way, just to get him. 
to know what he's like and to know how we might live a life that's worthy of him and pleases him in every way. Let me lead us in prayer. I'm going to pray a very old prayer at this point. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read them, mark, learn and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Just take a couple of minutes. There were a number of questions that came in, um, not, not surprisingly, I suppose. Uh, I'll answer, I'll get through all of them very briefly, but if you want to come and chat more about any of these things, I'll just hang around down the front afterwards. Just come and grab me. I'd love to keep talking. Uh, the first uh, question, there was actually two which almost asked the same thing, so let me read out the questions and then I'll say something about it. Uh, it was, um, how do you guard against turning into George W. Bush and interpreting Scripture the way you want to, either deliberately uh, or um, innocently? Um, and how can you test if the way you're being led is right? Um, thanks, thanks to the people who sent those questions in. Um, what I've tried to say today is that um, one of the keys in which we, uh, to us, not just pre-deciding what we want and then saying afterwards, God told me, I think is being open to others and to hearing what others have to say. Uh, I don't think that comes easily uh, for many of us, uh, particularly from a more Western background and in, particularly in an individualistic society where you tend to make decisions on your own anyway. Um, so I think part of what I'd encourage you is to just make your decision-making transparent and open. Uh, that's not about every single decision, but certainly on some of the big ones, a willingness to involve others to uh, ask for their input and for their honest reflection. I guess if you're not prepared to do that, that's a warning bell. Uh, that's, there's an alarm going off in my head there that's saying you'd rather just make it between you and God. Uh, the Bible is written to all of God's people. The assumption is that you read the Bible in the company of others and that uh, as iron sharpens iron, as you heard in that Proverbs series, we're meant to help each other in that. So that's one of the ways in which you do it. The other, uh, to state the obvious, but I haven't said it, which is why I should say it now, is that you pray and pray that God would refine your motives and test your motives. Um, that's what we're going to look at next week in particular, come back. Uh, but oftentimes when we're faced with a decision, I think what we pray is, God, shape my circumstances. By all means, do so. But the more important and more fundamental prayer to pray is, God, test my heart, uh, refine my desires, because that, in the end, is driving the way in which we make decisions. Uh, so there's a couple of thoughts there. Um, come back to me on that one later if you'd like to. Uh, the next question was, uh, should we expect uh, God to speak to us directly? Or the phrase they've used is extra-biblically today. And then how do we respond to Christians, especially those from, uh, for example, a more charismatic church who say God speaks to them directly, that is, they've heard God's voice? Uh, this is kind of taking that first scenario and now looking at it from the other side. What if you're the person who someone has said, I just want to run something by you, how do you respond? Um, what I've tried to say today, and I hope you heard that very clearly, right up front was, yes, God can speak directly to us. He can speak to us in our current circumstances. He is God. Of course, he can do anything. And I believe he does. But he promises to speak to us in his word. Uh, and so it seems to me that most of our attention ought to be directed towards the source which God promises to work through as opposed to the waiting for him to speak to me directly. Um, and again, if you're uncomfortable with that, if you would wish it were otherwise, if you would prefer that God just spoke to you directly so that you didn't have to comb through the Bible and keep rereading it, that raises a whole series of different questions that I presume you can see, again, go to the question of motive. Okay, so that's probably what I'd say about that one. Again, come back to me afterwards if you like to. And the final question was... Um, does God speak through prophets today? Does God speak through prophets today? So thank you to the person for asking this question. I presume they're referring to the fact that uh, in um, 1 Corinthians, Paul does imagine a scenario where there are prophets and prophecy in church. Um, ought we expect that uh, to still happen today? 
Uh, I've got a couple of things to say here. Uh, the first is, um, even if God does speak through prophets, and I do have some concerns about using that language because unfortunately you have seen Christian cult leaders who have designated themselves as prophets who are therefore beyond reproach from anyone. There's very little of being like the Bereans in that kind of context, is there? It's just, do what I say, I've been given a voice from God for the whole church. Um, so I think it's, it's a language that is risky for us. Uh, even if God does appoint prophets, consistently in the Bible, what are you to do when a prophet speaks? You are to test it against Scripture. Uh, And in fact, if what the prophet says is against scripture, well, in the Old Testament, you're to stone the prophet. (laughs) I take it the very least today where to ignore them, perhaps to correct them. But so in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul speaks about prophecy and tongues, which at least in the Corinthian church seem to exist, he always says, test it against scripture. And that's actually the key activity that needs to take place. So that's the first thing I'd say about prophets. The second thing I'd say then is to ask why we think We need prophets, modern-day prophets, if you use that vocabulary. I ask that because Scripture can make you wise for salvation, 2 Timothy 3. And I ask that because of, and with with this I'll finish, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 opens with these majestic words. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You hear the contrast that Hebrews is opening with. Yes, God did speak in lots of different ways, sometimes very interesting, oftentimes disregarded. But now, he's spoken to us in his own son. There is no greater representative of God's views than his own son. Uh, So why would we look anywhere else? Why would we crave anything more than that? Uh, And uh, in a moment, um, as Robin introduces our final song, the song that's been chosen, God has spoken. It starts with God has spoken by the prophets, uh, but it reminds us that he has spoken in his son and he's still speaking through his spirit who points us back to his son who is the heir of all things. Okay, now if you want to come back and chat with me more about prophecy, I'm more than happy to do so. Just grab me down the front and we'll see how we go.